when I first started, it was often I was the only female in the room. And there were often times where, as you can easily imagine, hey, this is the kind of coffee I want, where I would reply, great, when you're getting it, you can get me a cup too. (laughs) So it started, you know, there was a lot of that at the beginning of my career. Over time, you do see a lot of the guys go play golf or the guys go have a drink. And so you have to figure out how can you be part of that Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole for what we call spend culture. Welcome back to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Nicole, and today we are excited to be joined by Kate Motonaga, the CFO and COO of the Museum of Contemporary Arts. Welcome, Kate. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to announce that you're the first female guest that we've had on the podcast. This is an all-female-run podcast, so this is extra exciting for us, and we're looking forward to chatting with you today. Well, thank you for having me, and how exciting. This is great. Happy to represent. Maybe let's just start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. You've had a very fruitful career from being the CFO at the UCLA Anderson School of Management to leading finance teams at major consulting firms. And you've worked across many industries such as CPG and construction. So how did you get to where you are today? I think an insatiable desire to learn And a real concept that the things that I do uh, can cross many different types of markets and industries. So I never really thought to myself, I'm only a person that does this type of work or a person that does that type of work. And I always felt that you could learn so much. My basic philosophy, and people give me a hard time about this, is that there's no such thing as a conversation at work that's not an algebra problem. So, for example, if we have a story, you're going to do this X, Y, and Z, and I think, okay, cha-ching, money, okay, what's going to happen? And then I also think, what are all the steps to make that happen? So there's the operating side of how do we actually do it, and then there's the financial side. And that is crossed any company that you work at. So it's been fun to really learn all the different companies from frozen food to construction to working in a DA's office. It's been pretty exciting. That's awesome. I think that a lot of the times our best learning and experience comes from putting ourselves in environments that aren't similar to each other. And like you said, there's still kind of the same need for similar processes, but they are obviously just different depending on the industry and the environment itself. Yeah. There are things like a budget, a forecast things like maintenance and operations, they, they all have so many similarities. IT and HR, those are really pretty consistent. Mm-hmm, definitely. So as a female finance leader, what are some of the challenges that you faced and how have you overcome them? It's changed over time. When I first started, it was often I was the only female in the room And there were often times where, as you can easily imagine, hey, this is the kind of coffee I want, where I would reply, great, when you're getting it, you can get me a cup too. (laughs) So it started, you know, there was a lot of that at the beginning of my career. 
over time, you do see a lot of the guys go play golf or the guys go have a drink. And so you have to figure out how can you be part of that and participate without trying to be pushy or overwhelming in a way that actually makes them less inclined to work with you or talk to you or share with you. So what I found was always really listening, making sure that I understood where each of those people were coming from. Plus, everybody has something to teach you. So not only was I learning the business, but I was learning how they interact. And then I'm really big on sharing success. And everybody likes to be involved in something that's successful. But I also have a tendency to take on, you know, if something doesn't go right, I'm quick to say, this is where I went wrong. This is what I need to do. And this is how I correct it so it doesn't repeat going forward. And I think it was a respect factor after a while. Hey, if you want to get something done, you want to ask her to help out. If you want to know what's going on, she's on top of it. That's awesome. I think that that's such a great approach. I know oftentimes when you come into an environment where you're slightly outnumbered, it's easy to kind of become defensive or try to prove yourself in a way that's not as effective. And it sounds like the approach that you took paid off for you. I made a lot of connections that I have kept for years. So I think it does help out when you make sure that you're sharing things through a process and then you learn to trust each other. Absolutely. Now, is there something that you're really proud of in your career that you've never had the chance to share? I don't know if I haven't had the chance to share it, but something I'm really proud of is when I was young, I did a semester abroad in Spain. And so I learned Spanish and then I was working for a company And we had to do a greenfield site and they chose Mexico to build one of the construction sites. They picked several places across the continent, but Mexico was one. And I was able to both continue the job I had, which was director of finance, but also to jump in and be the interim controller in another country while they were creating a brand new building and they were hiring and they were trying to make sure that they were culturally appropriate. And that was really important to me. So I think that's something I'm really proud of that I don't get a chance to talk about very often. That's awesome. It's really cool to see where one experience can then apply later on in life. That's great. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I find that Oftentimes, the fun, there's usually some sort of compromise and typically a lot of work has to go into it to get there. Now, with your dual role of the CFO, COO, this is actually something that we've been seeing come up quite often, not only in our podcast, but just in the industry. So what are some of the interesting overlaps, but also differences that you've noticed between the two roles? I think different companies structure them where certain areas can fall under one or the other. So I think there is some commonality in some areas, the COO is over the IT or they're over all of the like retail operations. So we have a retail operation as well, and that falls under my role. And then there's HR. Sometimes that falls under the CFO. Sometimes IT falls under the CFO. So there's some common ground for the roles in general. The other side of it is, I like to say that when people ask, well, what do you actually do at Mocha? Not just what is your title? I say, I make sure that the building is here, the bills are paid, that all of the 
I's are dot, the T's are crossed, so that they can provide all of the experiences to the people that come to the museum, and they can put on all the exhibitions. So I think when you're organized, when you have to have processes and procedures, it can be very creative, don't get me wrong, but I think at the core, it's structured, and that, that's very complementary between the two. And I do think a lot of what those roles are is complementary. Um, I will say that the spend mentality is a little bit different between the two. And that's been something that I've had to adjust as I've evolved in my own career. You start off in accounting and you start off in finance and you think, oh, just hold the money, hold the money, hold the budget and you know, spend less, spend less, spend less. As a COO, you think, I need to do certain things. I can't have a roof that leaks. I can't have a bathroom that doesn't work. I can't have doors that don't lock or close. And so you're more focused on what needs to be done that's in the best interest of your organization. And so in some ways, you're like, I don't care what it costs, just get it done. And so it's trying to take those two and merge them together, even look at it in a completely different way. So I think those are probably the biggest compliments and differences between the two positions that I've seen. Definitely. And I really like what you said. It's not really about the title. It's about what you do. I think oftentimes it's easy to get caught up in the title and what we think that entails. But I think a lot of times it's so dependent on the organization and the situation and the goals of what you're trying to achieve. Very true. And in across different organizations, it's very different. Now, if you had to describe the spend culture of the Museum of Contemporary Art, what would it be? Evolving. The museum went through a really difficult period a few years ago, and the spend culture became one of top-down, um, do not spend, least amount of spending. As we have increased our endowment, as um, the museum has begun to grow, as we continue to increase both our attendance and our membership, there has been a you know a change in the spending, and yet some of the old culture still remains. I think where we are right now is probably the most exciting time for me, both on the COO and CFO side, which is. We are now thinking even outside the box of spending. So yes, you should be smart with the dollars you have. We're a nonprofit. We don't have an endless supply of dollars and we don't do things that we provide to the community for profit. That's not the intention. The intention is that everything we do is to, again, give back. But we also need people to donate. So we have to make sure that they feel that this is the right place to donate. And so our spend culture has really shifted to, to be able to say why we're so good at what we do and what we have that's so fantastic and to get lots of quotes for different things and look at things differently. And what if we did it this way or what if we did it that way? And then not exactly to the extent of, you know, build it and they will come, but to some extent of create what you want to happen so that when you are ready to go out, you've got a controlled but exciting new, completely bought into, well thought out, creative idea. And you're going to have a donor that wants to participate in that. And I think that's probably true for if we had a product. If you have an exciting product and you can show why it's exciting, then people will understand its value. And in some ways, what we provide to the community has value. And so it's really looking at it not so much as, 
here's one penny that you spend and oh my gosh, we have to monitor it. But it's what is the return on, on all of it? And what is the return based on limited resources? I mean, I will also say that we currently tell people this it we're very transparent this is what we have this is where we want to go and this is how we want to get there so that's really cool i think that oftentimes we forget that culture tends to evolve and it's not really something that you can just define and then it's executed exactly like that um and i like how you said it kind of puts control but at the same time you then see what comes after you have that control in place Yeah. I mean, it's also working with people that have that same mentality. So part of that is always bringing the people that manage each of their own budgets along with you in this process and having them really understand and buy into all of this. Definitely. Yeah. You have to have that understanding and the knowing of the why to make sure people are on board for the same reasons or, you know, executing with the same kind of end goal in mind. It's a learning process. (laughs) Definitely. So, What does the process for managing and tracking spend look like for you at your organization? As a nonprofit, we have fund accounting. I'm just going to explain it because I'm not sure where everybody is in terms of understanding fund accounting. And as an accountant, I make a lot of assumptions that everybody understands. Think about fund accounting like when you buy a house and you have to put down a down payment and the bank holds that down payment until you actually finish the purchase. One bank could have thousands and thousands of people that have given them their money. You don't want them to take the money that you gave for your down payment and use it for somebody else's house. So it's segmented. And that's how funds are. A donor says, I want to give you money to do education. I want to give you money to do public programming. You have to really make sure that that's how that's used. And so, well, you know, we look at budgets that way. So there's revenue for Um, specific projects. And then there's revenue that's general. And where we give, we create budgets in line with what are the goals? Where do we want to go? What do we think brings the excitement to our programs? And not only do donors be excited, but the people that we're trying to engage with are excited about them and and learning about the art and becoming part of, of, you know, art as it evolves, because art itself is is evolving all the time. And so what we do is we work with all of them up front. And then we say, I trust you to spend within your budget in the best way for the museum, because a budget is made at one point in time, but they're living day to day and having to make decisions. So micromanaging is not going to bring out the best in anybody. And it's certainly not going to bring out the best ideas and processes and procedures. Is there some risk in that? Do you have to kind of monitor it on a regular basis? Sure. But is that, should that be your goal? No, your goal should be to say, I really don't need to spend this time monitoring it. I'm doing it as good practice. Definitely. It sounds like there's a lot of trust involved as well on both ends in this process. We have a lot of people that have been here for a long time. I think the passion that people have, museums and other nonprofits are not really known for being super high paying and uber elegant offices. People do it for other reasons. And so there's also a lot of care that goes into 
the money. You know, if you talk to anybody in our education department, they want every penny they can garner to go to helping students and teachers in every way. So that's just their mentality. And I think that's true for the people that put on the exhibitions, for the people that put on the programs, and even for the people in my area that support them. They don't want to waste money doing something where that money could go to something else. It's really refreshing to hear. I think that's kind of a common theme that we've heard amongst non-for-profits compared to traditional kind of views on finance and spending. And like you said, there's a passion behind it and there's a purpose and they really are looking at the opportunities for every single dollar that comes in to benefit something bigger than themselves. Exactly. And they really do care. And the other thing too, is we've had people, I mean, say the major, our turnover is low and the majority of people that have worked here have 15 plus years. So it, it's a real family team in a lot of ways. That's awesome. I think that is a huge contributor to overall success. And like you said, getting people on board with that spend culture as well. And I'll say that it's different spend culture from other places that I've worked. So when I'm talking about all this, I'm really being specific to MOCA. Yeah, it's kind of easy to understand that as well, because typically, you know, when you look at big corporations, it's pretty obvious that the spend culture is quite different than a not-for-profit or the place that you work. Right, exactly. Now, I know we've kind of been talking about maybe more monetary donations, but how does the museum actually procure these art pieces and what are maybe some of the behind the scenes costs or things that happen that the general public might not be aware of? So that was my big learning coming over here, which was really exciting to find out about what's in the background, so to speak. I actually had a a group that I invited to come to the museum for a behind the scenes tour to look at things like this. So we obtain art pieces basically three ways. The first one is that we have people that donate money just for the idea of purchasing art pieces. And we have a structure around what holes do we have in terms of art? Do do we have this artist from this time period? And do we have a really extensive collection? Because our collection is one of the top three, maybe top two in the United States or in the world, we have an immense and an amazing collection. And so when we purchase, we want to make sure that we're in in line with the collection that we already have and to augment that. So that's one way. Another way is people donate art to us. We have extensive amounts of amazing artwork that has been donated. We have a Jackson Pollock. We have you know, Ruchet's, we have just all kinds of amazing artwork that people have donated. And that's probably our biggest portion of our collection is what has been donated. We borrow a lot of work when we're doing different shows. And then we, we do end up giving that back. The costs around art and procuring art, you have to have somebody go out and take a look at it. Is it in good shape? Is it you know, what is the real value of it? Did somebody accidentally spill cleaning fluid on it? Has it been in the sun too long? Did it, was it around moisture? So all these things, um, taking care of art, the humidity, the temperature, the light, and other things like food, wine, all that that are around it can make a big difference. So that's part of it. Crating and shipping has to be really carefully done and it's very expensive to do. And then we have to store it. 
So we probably have three warehouses, essentially, at the end of the day of storage for our artwork. And then you have to take care of it. So you have to have somebody come in and we call it conservation and they come in and they conserve the artwork. They clean it, they prep it, they make sure that anything that happens to it is taken care of. And none of those are in the donation. So when somebody hands you a piece of art, even as amazing as it is, we then have to figure out how do we ship it? Where do we store it? And then we have to store it forever. So we always have a storage cost and then we have to take care of it. We have to rotate the collection. So you put it up, you put it down, you move it in and out of storage. It's a large cost. And until recently, the accounting rules have not let you use. So you can sell art, but if you sell it, you have to purchase an equal amount. So you sell a $100 million painting, you have to buy $100 million of museum quality art. That's the easiest way to look at it. But you could not previously use some of that money to take care of the art that you were purchasing or to take care of the art that you had purchased previously. And now they're starting to say that owning an art piece is, thank goodness, is more than just owning the painting or the photograph or the sculpture. It's also the the part that makes it still viable 100 years from now. That is so interesting. I I honestly had no idea about the costs that come once you actually have that piece of art. And I think it's something that a lot of us take for granted. We just walk into these museums and we're able to experience this, but there's so much behind the scenes and the way that you have to account for it financially as well is really, really interesting. I think with contemporary art too, people are much more prone to want to touch it. And for everybody listening, please don't touch the art. (laughs) We have a a piece made out of aluminum and one fingerprint is so damaging because it's pure aluminum. And so if you touch it, you leave behind your fingerprint and it has to be so carefully taken care of. So different types of art have different ways and some modern art, they do want you to touch it. But yeah, people don't really always understand. And so we do spend a lot of time and money on people to explain that to the the people that come in, people to explain the art in general to people that come in, and then to take care of it when they accidentally do something that they didn't realize they shouldn't. Oh, that's crazy. It almost seems like having a piece of art is like having a child or a full-time employee or something. There's a lot of responsibility and costs that come along with it. There is. We have an entire department just focused on taking care of the art. Wow, that's amazing. Now, in terms of your own personal growth and learning, how do you continue to learn? Do you, are there any books that you read or blogs or groups that you're a part of that you get your resources from? I am an incessant reader in terms of when I go into a new organization of any type, and then while I'm in that organization, I always research the top topics. So for a museum, how do you become an accredited museum? What does it mean to be an accredited museum? Who are the major players in the art world right now? And so I just think it's really fascinating when you sit in on these meetings 
and you've never been uh, exposed to some of this, it's going by you so fast and you're trying to write down some of these names and words. And, and then as you are there longer, you really get to appreciate and say, wow, this is what this is and this is how this works. And it, it's just so much fun to learn something new. I also make sure that, and, and all, you know, every CFO, COO can understand this and maybe even people outside that, you know, different groups, but we have a group of museum CFOs across the U.S. and we email each other constantly. How do you do this? What do you do for this? What are you handling here? And it's a very sharing. It's not, I, you know, hiding. It's, it's, you know, what are your warts, but what are your beautiful roses and how do they work? And so that's also really helpful is to see all those exchanges and to be part of some of those exchanges you know, and we get tons of art books. And right now in my office, I probably have a hundred different art books that I can go through. And so it's, it's pretty exciting. That's really cool. I think it's always exciting to kind of dive into something new and just learn more about your environment and, you know, having a better understanding of just the world that you're operating in. And I think that's true across the board. I mean, I've done that when I got into construction. I took a lot of time to make sure that I was doing all the work to understand that side of it. When when I was working for a home goods store, I did that as well. It's really, it, when I worked for the water department, that was fascinating because it was during the drought. But I think in any organization you work at, really understanding it also makes you better at your job, especially as a CFO. If you know what's going on, how it's going on, and you can anticipate it, you are going to be better at forecasting than if you're just looking at numbers because the story matters. The story creates the numbers. The numbers reflect the story. It's almost a little bit like journalism, and it's also a little bit like fortune telling. Definitely. I like that you said that. I like the fortune telling piece because I think it's so true. You have to be able to be proactive in in situations and having that context and understanding behind the world that you're operating in, I think allows you to be that much more prepared. Yeah. And and it makes you ask the right questions too. Somebody starts talking about something and then you can ask, well, what about this, this, and this? And, And that's really helpful. Absolutely. And I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think especially in the position that you're in now, how do you go about establishing financial controls within an organization specifically um, in your current role? And are there ways that you found helpful to get buy-in? I would say that you cannot be without policies and procedures and the communication of those on a regular basis is critical. Not everybody does the financial side on their day-to-day. They have to manage it because they're managing a department or they're managing a budget, but that's not what they do. What they do is education. What they do is maintenance. What they do is create amazing exhibitions. So they don't really think of this every day all the time like you do if you're a CFO. And so you want to have something in place that they can regularly refer to to make sure that they don't have it all memorized. It also creates kind of boundaries. But the most important part of it is having them see that these financial controls help them and help the organization to do exactly what they're there to do and why we have that. 
Does it make everybody happy every single day? Goodness, no. Does everybody want to double their budget? Yes. But they do respect what the controls mean and why we have them. And I think, too, like at MOCA, because we went through a hard time about 10 years ago, it's, as I said, with people being here for so long, it's still fresh in their minds that you have to be conservative with your spending or at least creative and using the dollars in the best way. So it's really a conversation. The best financial control you have is an open, transparent conversation. I agree. There can be such a negative connotation around policy and procedure, but I think even in the most relaxed environments, you still need that to set expectation and standard. And it is important to have those process. But like you said, communicating that and having people understand the purpose behind it, I think is what allows you to execute on those policies and procedures. Yeah. And then you can just, you know, always have a hammer at your desk. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) My last question for you, what is the best piece of advice that you've received so far in your career? It was one of the first pieces of advice I ever got. It's something that I use with all of my mentees. And it was that you are the CEO of your own career. So you need to own everything, the successes and the failures, the learning, the growth, the change, and that taking risks is necessary, that teamwork is really important. But at the end of the day, it's not about what everybody else did or said or where they went or how they acted. And so I think that's part of why I've been successful is that I look at my career as something that I can grow from and I'm always growing from it and then I can do something new. And it's also helped me create a really low risk profile. So I'm not worried all the time about what's going to happen here and what's going to happen there. And I don't think to myself, I only need to do this one thing for the rest of my life because if I'm the CEO, I can make any decision I want. And so I really carry that with me. And I You know, it sounded a little bit trite, but it's kind of how I've absorbed it. And I love it. I really like that. I think that's so important for anyone to keep in mind. I mean, at the end of the day, you are the person that's making your decisions. And we really can't control the external factors, but we can't control how we respond to them and our own choices. And I really like that. I think that's a great piece of advice. Thank you. I appreciated it so much as I especially throughout my career. And and I think it works for when people are even doing their own jobs within the job itself. Just do the best you can, work as hard as you can. Don't take in the negative side of things. How do you turn it and make it successful? How do you take a, a tough situation, a tough boss, a tough employee, a tough financial situation, a, a tough maintenance situation, and how do you make that really positive and how do you make that give you something that you can go back and be really proud of? Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It has been so great learning more about you and your role and a world that we have not been exposed to yet. Um, I've learned a lot through this conversation and I know that our audience is going to be really excited to listen in as well. Thank you for having me. I'm feel very honored and appreciative. So thank you very much. You're welcome. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.